This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 21. It's speaking of Jesus going into the area of Jerusalem near the temple, and, and uh, that's where we take it up. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, up to him as he was teaching, and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they, the religious leaders, answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love that story. No, 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 no. That's what I'm going to do. If you could answer that, I'd answer you. But you didn't, so I didn't. You know, um, last week, the Masters finished up. I'm not a, a, a golf fan, really. I, I don't hate it. I just don't watch it. I, I tend to like sports that are held in air-conditioned buildings. So that's kind of kind of how it works without a lot of walking around. And, uh, and, and I played golf, but I hate how I feel when I'm done. Um, I just hate losing things in the woods. So, um, but the Masters was last week, and, and so I tend to tune in or at least follow the news and see who's winning the Masters, who gets the green jacket. And, and, uh, and so the guy that won this past week after his apparently a just incredible end to the, to the tournament was uh, Patrick Reed. Now, I I, I know some of the, the pro golfers by name, you know, not, not personally, but I know who they are. You know, I, I, I follow sports, I read up on that. But Patrick Reed, I didn't know a whole lot about Patrick Reed, and so I did a little Googling on him to, to figure out who he was and, and, uh, and, and where he's come from and his story. And his story, his personal story, was hitting the news, news channels and the sports channels quite a bit last week. Uh, I'll let you Google that for yourself. But, but it, apparently he, he enjoys, at least at some level, uh, playing the villain uh, when, he, when he's golfing. I mean, there's, there's always good guys and bad guys, right? And so he kind of plays that villain role at times if he can. He has some issues with his family. He's estranged from his parents, and there's, there's more there than I would even know to get into. But, but he is uh, the Masters champion. He won the green jacket, and he, he was, he's definitely been in the news over the last week or so. Now, <clears throat> I, was, I was with someone this past week, and uh, they're a golf fan, and they go to different tournaments, and they'll, they'll follow the, the golfers around. And it said they were at one tournament. I don't remember which one it was, but they, they heard this commotion. And, I mean, it was loud. There was some yelling going on. And, and normally you're not getting a lot of that there at a, at, a, at a PGA event, I guess. But there was some yelling happening and some noise going on. And so they kind of made their way to where the noise was, and they realized that the, there was a woman uh, just lambasting the PGA official. And just, just just talking to him and saying things you can't say in church, and it's amazing what she was doing. The tirade was there; it was getting louder and louder. And and if her neon clothes weren't loud enough, her voice made up for it. And as they got closer, they heard the individual, the lady, say, "This, that's my husband." And so Patrick's uh, wife, Justine, was all over the official regarding a drop, a ball, a ball drop, and then Patrick joined in as well. And yet there was this statement of, that's my husband out there, and, and, and with a, probably a few more adjectives. But anyway, there was that. And all of a sudden, everybody in the crowd went, ooh. So she's apparently somebody. 
The crowd, who may not have recognized her, absolutely knew who she was then. Subtlety was not the adjective used to describe her that day or her husband. That's, uh, that's my husband is, is kind of in the same vein as, hey, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? You know, you can kind of Google this one too. Reese Witherspoon had an encounter, I think it was up in Georgia, maybe Atlanta, about a year ago or so. And uh, I don't know that she remembers doing it, but it was called on dash cam. And the quote was, before the, uh, the law enforcement officer took her, home, took her to, not to his home, but to another home, uh, or at least dealt with her, she, she said something to the effect of, do you know my name? You're about to find out who I am. She wasn't giving out autographs, though she probably did sign a piece of paper. Um, David Hasselhoff, I know for many of you have shared, you know, uh, Paul, that's one of your favorite actors. Um, just <laughs> I love that. That's worse than being uh, uh, what I said about you last week, right? Fairy tale expert. All right, so, so David Hasselhoff, who the Hoff, was apparently at Wimbledon either last year or the year before, and he was trying to get into a bar. So now, Baptist preacher referencing Hasselhoff and a bar. So that happened today. It just happened right here. Um, so he's trying to get into this bar at Wimbledon that was reserved for ten- tennis players, and he was not allowed entrance, and he was caught because now we live in the age where everything is caught on a camera. On a, you ever seen one of these? You ever seen one of these? There are some people in the room that actually think this is a telephone, but it's rarely used, rarely used to make a phone call. I don't know if you knew that, but they make videos. And so the Hoff was caught saying, all I want is a drink. Do you know who I am? That was his statement. And then you can just kind of keep Googling. It just keeps going. I mean, it's celebrity after celebrity from Rihanna to Miley Cyrus to Mike Tyson to Busta Rhymes, Shia LaBeouf, Sam Worthington, Alec Baldwin, Faye Dunaway, and the list goes on and on and on. Celebrities who are saying, don't you know who I am, <clears throat> at a point when they're about to get in trouble, or something's about to happen, or they think they should be treated special. Here's a word to the wise. If you ever have to say, don't you know who I am, probably the person you're talking to either does not know who you are and does not care. And, uh, and so your question will do little to help your situation. It might land you on a list somewhere on Google, but it's not going to help you. Well, the religious leaders of this day weren't asking Jesus the question, don't you know who we are? But they were asking a similar question in the same vein, at least. Their question wasn't, do you know who we are? Their question was, who do you think you are? That's really what they're asking. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I mean, that question, we've heard it. Maybe you've said it. Maybe you thought it. Uh, you've seen people like, you know, maybe the people that are going, don't you know who we are? The other people are going, who do you think you are? But the question these guys asked was very simply a question about authority. It was a question about authority disguised in a way to make it uh, apparently an authentic question, but it was ultimately an attack on the character of Jesus Christ. This was just one of many attempts on Christ by the religious leaders. It wasn't new, not unique, not unheard of, but the intent was to destroy Jesus' identity or his character in a public forum for the purpose of lifting themselves up. That's what it was asked for. The question of identity has been asked of Jesus since Jesus first started healing, teaching, and doing miracles during those three plus years of ministry during the reading of what we've read through the gospel so far. 
It began in the Galilee region. It began in his hometown. It began in Nazareth. Who do you think you are? If you remember back, I think it's Luke chapter 5, Jesus goes back home to his hometown of Nazareth. He's welcomed into the synagogue. He's given a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll. He reads from Isaiah's writings, the Old Testament prophet, and he reads that this statement about messianic com- the, the coming of the Messiah, saying, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm going to bring sight to the blind. I'm going to heal the brokenhearted. I'm going to set free the prisoners. And then he rolled up the scroll and he hands it back to the rabbis and he looks at them and says, and today this has been fulfilled in your presence. I am that guy. And all of his hometown buddies and the people he went to school with and the people he grew up with were totally frustrated and ticked off at him and they ran him out of town trying to kill him, trying to stone him. In other words, they were saying, Jesus, who do you think you are to tell us that you're the Messiah? That question started then and it continued on and on and on. But I think about this one aspect when he went back to the region or was up in the northern region of Israel near the Sea of Galilee at a city called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi we spoke of a few weeks back. Caesarea Philippi was the place where there was this huge cave. In the cave, in the middle of that cave, they had water that flowed out of it, an underground spring. And uh, we've been there, so we've seen this. And they actually, at the time, the Romans, the Greeks, they had a temple built right there, a shrine built right in the center of that cave. And that shrine, that temple was built to the god Pan, the little goat-legged god, the god of revelry and debauchery and other things. And the worship being done for that God was unheard of. That's what was happening right there in Caesarea Philippi. And oh, by the way, the locals called the cave the gates of hell. So Jesus has got his disciples with him at Caesarea Philippi. Let me take you back to Matthew 16. And Jesus is there. It says, when they came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he, Jesus, asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, and he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter responded or replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he was was congratulated for getting it right. We see in that city, in that city on the northern side of the Galilee region, where the the, uh, Herod had named the city after Caesar, trying to get in good with the Romans, the God, of, the God Pan was being worshipped with all that entailed that kind of worship. And here's this small group of Jewish men in the synagogue area in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus looks at him and says, who, who does everybody say that I am? Loaded question. And their honest answer gives us insight into what's going on during these three years of ministry. Not every one of the 5,000 men plus women and children that's, that were there when Jesus fed them a free lunch Not every one of the 4,000 men and the women and children that showed up when Jesus fed them a free meal, not all of those that saw him heal sick people and make them well, not all of those who saw him make dead people live again and do miraculous things, not all of those believed him when he said he was the Son of God and God the Son. So Jesus says, who do they say I am? And it became very clear that the masses were confused. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're like a... Elijah the prophet back. Uh, Some think you're like Jeremiah the prophet. You're like a prophet, they think. Close but no cigar, really. He was none of those things. He was much more than that. 
And not much has changed in the 21st century American version of Christianity. There are a lot of people gathering in buildings today just like this. Some are sitting in buildings that are much darker with really cool light. Some are sitting in buildings that are much smaller with more uncomfortable pews. But they're sitting around all around our nation in buildings that have church on the front with crosses on the front. And they're getting various versions of Jesus presented to them. And some are getting the biblical version. And some are getting a prosperity version. And some are getting a dumbed down version. And some are getting a watered-down version. And some are getting a feel-good version. See, there's still a lot of confusion. Who do you say I am? The question asked then led to the right answer. The religious leaders confronting Jesus with an identity disguised as a question. An identity question disguised as an authority question. They say, by whose authority are you doing these things? But ultimately they're saying, who do you think you are? God does not discourage questions, by the way. I think if you read through Scripture, if you just do a little, you can do a Google search on questions in the Bible, and you'll see the psalmist and the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament writers many times asking questions of God, wondering certain things. How long will you tarry? Why is this happening? Why is this the way it is? Everybody I know that's a believer still has questions. I don't know anybody that's fully got it all figured out. What I do have figured out is what Jesus has said clearly in Scripture. But there are still questions even Christians have. Even Christians who have grown up in church, who have been in church since nine months before they were actually born, still have questions. And there are Christians who have had, if you were to add up all the hours of time they've sat in Sunday school classes, having someone else read Bible stories to them their entire life, they should have a Ph.D. by now. But they still have questions. And questions that kind of come out of nowhere at times. Questions they will preface with, well, I know I shouldn't ask this question, but I wonder about. And I've talked to a number of people over the years in these circumstances. Questions about life and about death and about what heaven's like and and is it real and can my relatives see me and can this happen and what about dogs going to heaven? All these kind of questions. There's all kinds of questions. And I don't think God's up there going, oh, no, no, don't ask questions. I don't think that's at all what's happening. But I do see something very unique in the type of question being asked here. It's not the question from an individual seeking real answers. These are questions that are loaded. These are questions that, that aren't questions from a heart or from an individual with a desire for a real answer. These are questions intent on trapping Jesus and proving themselves to be smarter than him. I do a Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening Bible study. We're going through the book of Nehemiah. Many of you are in that group on either one of those two hours. And last week we we were reading through Nehemiah 5, one of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament. You have Nehemiah, who's the prophet of God, who is a cupbearer of the king in the Persian era. He is allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild a wall around the city. That's That's the easy synopsis of Nehemiah. In the midst of rebuilding that wall around the city, there are these three stooges that show up, and their whole intent throughout the book of Nehemiah is to cause distress and to cause problems for the man of God doing the work of God. And the principle that is very much revealed through the men, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the three stooges that are placed in that book, is that any man or woman who lives for the Lord, seeking to do a work greater than self, seeking to make a difference, leave a legacy for the glory of God and for the good of humanity, anybody, especially pastors and ministers, will have a Sanballat, a Tobiah, and a Geshem 
probably in their church or in their Sunday school class, especially in their community. There are always those individuals in the story. There are always those that look good on the outside but are wanting to cause disruption and stop the work and the movement of, the, of God in that community. That's just a reality. Anybody, it's a leadership principle. Anybody in leadership knows this. If you're in leadership and you're doing something for the Lord and you don't have a Sanballat Tobiah or a Geshem in your story, then you're probably not doing anything for the Lord. Because they're going to show up. And I love in chapter 5 when those three jokers show up and they try to get Nehemiah to quit working on the wall to have a meeting. I know it's a rehash for some of you, but they send them up. They said, hey, Nehemiah, can you come down from the, ma- the wall a little bit? We want to talk to you. And Nehemiah, one of my favorite Old Testament verse, he, and I'm paraphrasing, he looks down and says, I ain't got time for you. That would be a paraphrase. The work I'm doing is too important for me to stop doing the work of the Lord and to give you an hour of my time for a useless meeting, knowing that you don't really want to meet anyway. You just want to make sure the work stops. So if you can identify the Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem's in your story, then you can spend more time working for the Lord as God has called you to, which he has. But it takes wisdom. It takes discernment. It takes maturity. And I look at Jesus doing the very same thing with these guys. When the religious leaders come to him and they say, by whose authority do you have this? Jesus is continuing to be who he is. He doesn't ever, never changes that at all. No no stretch of the imagination. And he does what he always does. When he's asked a question, he responds with a question. And the question he asks is, by whose authority is uh, John baptizing gods or man's? And so here's what I find interesting. These religious leaders are coming with a question originating from unbelief. This is not an honest question seeking answers. This is a question that originates and stays in the world of unbelief. The Pharisees, religious leaders in this story, there were some exceptions. There's the Nicodemus and others, but these in this story did not like Jesus. They did not want to hear Jesus. They did not like how he was drawing crowds. He didn't, they didn't like how he turned over tables in the temple, but ultimately they did not like how he was turning over the status quo. And they had previously encountered John the Baptist and rejected his message. Verse 32 affirms that. And so they start with disbelief that Jesus is who he says he is, and their question of authority is not one to say, convince me otherwise. They're stuck in their disbelief, in their unbelief, and they're trying to trap him. I find this funny. These guys are trying to trap Jesus with a question they've worked up. Hey, if we go to him and we ask this question, he's not going to be able to answer. When he answers it, it's going to make him look like a fool, and we're going to win. And so they go with this question. They're loaded with this question. By whose authority are you doing this? Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And all of a sudden, those that are trying to set the trap are caught in their own trap. They can't say a word. They're stuck. They can't respond. If we say it's of God, then why didn't we believe him earlier? If we say it's of man, then all these people are going to kill us because they think he's a prophet. And that tells you this as well. Their question originated from unbelief, but it also originated in fear. There was a great fear there. These religious leaders are afraid of the people in case they answer the question and say that John the Baptist was just a, was not a prophet. Because if they say John was not a prophet, the people are going, but he was a prophet. And all of a sudden, the status quo shifts. See, they like status quo. It was not a perfect world. It was a messed up world. They were living in Israel under a puppet king named Herod that really worked for Caesar. Rome was the occupying army. They weren't allowed to have an army. The Romans had the army. But these guys because of their negotiations and their ability to compromise, remained in a pseudo-power structure where they had some authority religiously. 
And if anybody comes and messes that up, we're going to lose our authority. So we would rather be big fish in a little pond, at least in our own mind, than have the truth told. And that's why Jesus frightened them so much. They were afraid and they did not want to believe. They were afraid of what might be true. Today, the boldness of those that are far from God increases. And the questions bent on discrediting Jesus Christ often create fear, not just among non-believers, but among Christians as well. And so therefore, many times as Christians, we avoid questions if we can help it. There is a fear, I believe, if not overtly, at least subconsciously, from those in the world today who disavow that God even exists. It is a fear that what if he does exist? What if God is real? What if God is true? What if Jesus is who he says he is? There are a lot of agnostic atheists and any version of that that people try to attach to their own lives as adjectives about their faith understanding. And yet there is this this nagging question that I think remains in the back of the mind that what if this Bible is true? I, I, I don't know how, if I find it amazing that the Christian message, which is grace and mercy and love and salvation and righteousness and holiness, is so offensive to a world. And it's offensive because it's an intolerant message. It's an intolerant message because Jesus dared to say there's only one way to heaven is through him. It's an intolerant message because it doesn't say just be a good guy or a good girl and it'll all work out in the end. That's it. It's an intolerant message because it says there's only one door and Jesus is the door. You ever wonder why the the whole uh, evolution and creation thing gets to such a head, why it's such a big deal? Maybe you don't think about it too much, and maybe you think about it way too much. There's two extremes of everything, I guess. But if you're an evolutionist and you're disavowing the concept of creationism because your faith is in a scientific theory, because it does require faith, whether you're a young earth or old earth or whatever, I'm just going to go ahead and say if there is such a thing as a creator who has created, whether you intelligent design or whatever you want to call it, let's just go with creationism. I know that's a separate sub, subtext there. So if you dare believe there is a creator named God who created the earth in a literal seven days, or maybe you want to expand that. I don't really care at this point, but you're going to believe there's a God who created. The problem with that, and the reason you have to disavow that, the reason you have to say that doesn't exist, the reason the evolutionaries don't want that to even be a concept, because if there is a creator who created the earth, then you have to go ahead and say that there must be something to this concept of absolute truth and sin. That's where the issue is. It's not even, there, there are people fighting on the, on the extremities of the evolution creation thing, uh, and it's not really about all of that. It's all about absolute truth and the acknowledgement that sin exists. Because if there is such a thing as absolute truth, which the Bible affirms, absolute truth being that which is true for all people, all times, and all circumstances, not changing, meaning that this whole construct of that may be true for you, but it's not true for me is bogus. That doesn't work. There are things that are true for all people, all times, all circumstances. If we believe that to be the case, then we go all the way back to the creation story and we realize there is a holy God who is sovereign, who created man in his image. The only people, the only thing created on the planet, image bearers of God, are humanity, man and woman, by his design. And man and woman, created by God, by his design, as image bearers of him, are placed in that garden, and all of a sudden, sin enters the story. So now you've got to acknowledge there's a sin. And if there's sin in the story, then there's punishment for that sin. If there's punishment for that sin, then there are consequences for that sin. If there are consequences for that sin, then you need a redeemer, and I need a redeemer. And now we're all the way right back to why Jesus had to come. It all comes full circle when you get to that. 
And so there is this fear that says, if Jesus is who he says he is, if there's a chance that God is right, then I better understand it, I better surrender to it, I better grab hold of this, because the ramifications of him being right and me not wanting to believe it are so severe, I don't want to think about that. So let me spend my entire life trying to disprove that Jesus is who he says he is, which is futile. But that's what people do. And that's what's happening here. There is a fear that God may be right. There's also a fear that Christians experience as well. Christians, I'm talking about Christians. People you prayed, you've asked Jesus in your life, you surrendered to him, you've been baptized, you're active in the church, you love Jesus, you have a fish on your car, you're that kind of Jesus person. You love, love Jesus. You're definitely going to heaven, no doubt. But there is a fear that sometimes overtakes good, solid followers of Christ. And that fear is that what if, what if that coworker, that family member, that neighbor asked that question that I can't answer? I'm going to look dumb. No one likes to look dumb. And the fear of not knowing how to answer, even though you know God is right, but you don't know how to answer hard questions, and you don't want to be thrust to hard questions, and you don't have the boldness and the the ability to discern, is this an authentic question or is it a pharisaical or a a Sambalat-Tobiah type question? This fear wells up among Christians. And do you know the easiest way to, to uh, respond to hard questions that you don't have the answer to? Avoid them. That's the easiest way. If you never are engaged in a conversation where hard questions are welcomed, you never have to answer them. And you can live your entire life never addressing the challenging things that aren't just, ooh, I learned that in VBS in third grade. They're a little deeper. They're a little harder. And what happens is that doesn't do much for the questioner and it does very little for the one who is questioned. And it's a pretty weak response at best and cowardly at worst. But where are our answers? What about when the questions are authentic? What about when the questions are needed, needing answers? And what about when God uses us as the one to answer? Here's what we know. Jesus is the answer. The answer originated in him. And here's what he said to these guys. He said, I'll ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, I'll tell you what, by what authority I do these things, which I find interesting because Jesus has already told them by what authority he's doing all these things, so it's not like a secret. He's already revealed that throughout the gospel. So if you want to know what that statement is when Jesus looks to the religious leaders and say, you tell me and I'll tell you, that's a mic drop moment. That's a, I'm putting it back in your court moment. That's to see what you're going to do here. The religious attackers are trapped. The passage reveals that they fell into a trap they didn't know was being set for them. They thought they were setting a trap for Jesus. You can see that even at this moment, they know they can't answer. They're stuck. They're stuck. If they answer this way, this is going to happen. If they answer this way, it's going to happen. It's not a trick question. It's just they set themselves up for this. So at this point, the religious Jewish Pharisees who do not like, want, or believe Jesus became virtual agnostics when they said, we don't know. And I want you to understand, when they say, we don't know, that's a smokescreen. They know, but they didn't want to know. That's different. They know by what authority Jesus is doing these things because it's been said by him and proven over and over and over, but they don't want to know that it's true. This has been used for years. The authority of Christ comes from the Father. This is where my brain melts because I can't fathom how this works. But we have one God who is revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All equally God, but three persons. And it's a faith step to understand and believe that, or to believe that, and to believe that that the Bible reveals this, this Trinitarian doctrine. But it also reveals this, that the authority that Jesus Christ has, all authority that he has in what he's doing and what he is saying comes from the Father. He does nothing the Father has not told him to do. 
Jesus is the Son of God. He is the God, the Son, and He is authorized in all that He has done and all will do. The, the feigned ignorance of the religious leaders regarding John the Baptist's baptism and the message of the gospel as lived out and proclaimed by Jesus Christ left them in the presence of the Son of God, in the presence of God Himself, right next to Him without a relationship. And so the world says to Jesus Christ, even today in the 21st century, not much has changed. The world says, who do you think you are, Jesus? And Jesus has a very clear answer. It's not a trick answer. It's not a trick question. Jesus answers throughout Scripture. The, the Word of God reveals it. That Jesus Christ is more than a celebrity. He is more than a singer, a movie star, or even a professional golfer. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, sacrificed on a cross for the glory of the Father and the payment of the sins of us. Raised to life on the third day, Redeemer, King of kings, Lord of lords. I know for some that sounds like just a bunch of religious adjectives, but those are definitive terms that describe who He is and more. So Jesus is God. And yet, here's a question that I think we have to answer today. Who do you think you are, Jesus? That's been answered. So now Jesus looks to you and he looks to me, and here's the question he asks. Who do you think you are? And for some of you in the room today who are Christians, you still struggle with identity. For some of you who are not believers, your identity is secured in not believing. And he is calling you to himself today. For the Christians... Maybe you need a reminder today of who you are so the enemy's lies don't seep into your mind and through your ears and convince you otherwise. If you are a child of God, if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. John 1.12 affirms that. And let's just go ahead and nail this down and clarify this so that everybody in here gets this. Not every human being on the planet is a child of God, regardless what celebrities or those on TV or others you may know say. Aren't we all God's children? The right answer is No. We are not all God's children. Not every human being on the planet is a child of God. But every human being on the planet is a creation of God made in His image with the opportunity to be called a child of God, adopted by Him, given a new name. And for those of you who are Christians, celebrate the reality that you have all the rights and privileges of a child of the King. You're not just some random creation yet to be adopted. You have been adopted by the Father, and it is an eternal adoption. Not only are you a child of God, you're a branch of the true vine. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Meaning that my teachings, my gospel, the Holy Spirit equipping, will equip His church, you, me, and others, to spread the truth of the Word of God. This is not a secret, folks. We're not supposed to keep the gospel to ourselves. You are the branches attached to the vine. The vine is our nourishment, John 15. You are also a friend of Jesus. I think there's a song, we probably sung it, you probably have it in your head. It's, I am a friend of God, I am a friend. You know, it kind of gets there, it can't get out. It's like an earworm, man. You can't get rid of that song. I'm a friend of God. Finish it, I am a friend of God. Finish that song, I am a friend of God. Oh, Lord, he calls me friend. Amen, it's over. So, it's not that I don't like it, it just keeps going. But it's so biblical. That's not just some random 7-Eleven church song. You know what those are, right? Seven words, 11 times through? Okay. That's a song that has biblical foundation. You have the rights and the privileges to be known as a friend of God. He calls you friend. And that's not a Facebook friend. That's a real friend. 
John 15. Who are you? You're the redeemed. You've been redeemed, Romans 3.24. Who are you? You've been accepted by Christ. You've been picked. You're on the team. You're accepted. You have a place at the table. You don't have to sit at the kids' table. The real table. A real chair. Romans 15.7. You are a new creation. New name, new creation, made in His image. 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are no longer a slave, but a child. Galatians 4.7. You are set free. Galatians 5.1. I think we sang that song earlier today about freedom. You are forgiven. Ephesians 1.7. And you are made complete. Colossians 3.1. And the verses go on and on and on and on. So while we ask and we hear the world say to Jesus, who do you think you are? He responds very clearly through the gospel. I'll tell you exactly who I am. But then the question is asked of the followers of God, but who do you think you are? And I don't have to think about it. I know. I am all of these things and more. And I deserve none of them. I am all of these things and more. Not because I'm good enough. Not because I'm smart enough. Not because I have the right friend. Not because I, I, don't you know who I am? No, I am all of these and more because of Jesus Christ. And because of what God has done. My prayer for you today is this. That you will affirm, know, acknowledge, and have these titles attached to you as well. There are a lot of good people in our community. Comparatively. But they all don't know Jesus. And yet here we are, worshiping, singing, studying. And maybe, just maybe, somebody in the room still doesn't know Jesus this way. Maybe today is your day of salvation. Maybe today is the day you give up. Maybe today is the day you don't add Jesus to your already busy life, but you surrender all of your life to him. And you say, you know, if you're one of those guys or ladies that says, let me, I got to get some things right before I come to Jesus. You have been fooled. You've been fooled. Because you can't get it right. But if you come to Jesus today, he'll make it right. Let's pray.